Hello and welcome to Cross Street Coaching. I'm your host, Jason, from Hawthorne Union. This show is designed to be bite-sized information on personal growth, career, and leadership development, and professional coaching. Cross Street Coaching. This is episode three. Volatility and vulnerability. So I just got back from a ski trip over the weekend. We have a yearly ritual that I do with some friends that come from out of town from Kansas. And we get together, we kick the new year off, we get out of Dodge, they come into Colorado, we uh, get out of town with them, and we usually spend a few days skiing, enjoying some outdoors, really reconnecting with our families, talking about catching up on things, talking about our plans for the year, usually enjoying some libations and getting cozy in the winter. And this trip, you know, last year my wife was pregnant with our daughter, so she didn't get to ski. So this year she was very excited. We had made plans to trade off. I was going to ski one day, she would ski one day. And so being so excited to get back into the groove and getting on the mountain, my wife was a little hesitant at first, but she eventually decided to go. And at first, Everything's going awesome, right? It's all coming back to her. It's like riding a bike. We check in with her at lunch. It's going great. She's having a great time. She's having a blast. She's on the mountain. She's really enjoying herself. She's feeling really good. She's feeling really confident. Everything is going well. We have a great lunch and say goodbye. And I decide to hang out at the ski lodge for the rest of the day. Our older son is snowboarding, and maybe about 30, 45 minutes later, I get a call that, hey, Brenda's fallen off the the ski track. She fell off the trail. Everything's okay. Everything's cool. You know, nothing broken, but we're going to get a ski patrol to help her out. And said, okay, I'll, I'll meet you down there at ski patrol. Normally, I'm thinking, okay, she got a little bumped, bruised. You know, I've definitely taken my fair share of spills as an amateur uh, ski and snowboarder. My first time snowboarding was not fun at all. And when I get to ski patrol, uh, I don't see her at first. You know, it took me about 10 minutes. Of course, I, I hustled, but I had I had all this stuff with me. It took me a moment to get everything together, but I rushed down there as quick as I could. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And, you know, some other people come in, they get treated, they leave, and then they bring Brenda and she gets brought in on a stretcher. And one of our family friends, their son comes in, is like, it's bad. She doesn't know what happened. She doesn't know what's going on. And they're bringing her in and they are immediately rushing back. And she does, she's not really super aware of what's going on. And I get kind of panic stricken a little bit, but kind of seeing what's going on and, and they're, they're getting to work right away. They're awesome. You know, shout out to all the people at uh, Wolf Creek Lodge. They are incredible. They took her issue very seriously and they went right to work. They kept her isolated and they're checking for injuries and she looks a little rough. She's got tree and leaves and stuff all over her. 
and she's not quite coherent. She's there. She's talking. She's asking uh, if her daughter's okay. And, uh, but she doesn't remember what happened. And sure enough, luckily, at the end of all this, um, nothing major happened. She ended up getting a concussion and getting knocked out, getting the wind knocked out of her. Nice, uh, nice sized goose egg that hides under her, her hair there. But at the time when you're seeing your loved one on a stretcher, you know, isolated in neck brace, you know, they're putting the flashlight, checking, checking her eyes, asking her questions to check to her cognitive ability. It was a little disarming. And there was a, a, a very weird dichotomy going on. On one hand, for me, you know, I had our two kids there. We had some friends there. I really felt that I had to be strong. That I had to be calm not be the alarmist. Traditionally, in medical situations, because of my day job and background, I've gained a little bit of insight as a a layman, but knowing enough in the industry that it's very easy to jump to conclusions in the medical field. So I wanted to let them do their thing. But at the same time, when you start seeing your loved ones in situations like this, your mind starts racing. As we're going in the medical transport from the ski area to the hospital, I start kind of thinking, you know, yeah, she's stable. She's okay. But what if something happens? What if she's losing part of her memory? What if she's unable to do this and that? Luckily, there was no spinal damage. They kind of deduced that, but they're sending her to a CT MRI. And it was really, really tough because at some point when eventually they go through all the process, they check her, okay, she's got no brain bleeding, she's got no skull fracture, you know, I finally get to talk to her a little bit, they're letting her, they're asking her to walk around, they're giving her some anti-inflammatories, they know what to give her now that they know there's no major issues, and I'm talking with her. And at one sense, I didn't want to freak her out, but I chose to be really honest with her, which is telling her, you know, you really scared me there for a second. I chose to be vulnerable. And that was a really, really interesting choice because traditionally, one of the things that I've been processing is, you know, after two days of skiing, someone that's prone to lower back pain doesn't really feel their best. But you have someone that has this major, major issue just come off the hot out of the hospital. And let me tell you, when someone gets a concussion, when someone gets a head injury, luckily she didn't have, it's not a full-blown TBI or anything like an NFL, NFL football player. You're not really feeling your best. One, you feel like crap. Just drowsy. Two, you're really super sore in wrong places, such as your neck, top of your head. Three, you got a headache on top of that. So imagine feeling, one, extremely tired, achy, sore. You're not really in the best mindset to make decisions. So the next couple of days after that, even though we had another day of our vacation, was not the easiest. And one of the things that I realized is that in my relationship, not just in my marriage, but I have this habit 
of putting myself second, which is making sure everyone's okay. Now, in a traumatic situation, it's natural, of course. But after we got home from the hospital, after the next first 24 hours, we're out of the out of the danger zone. And you have someone that has just experienced a, a crash and has a head injury, not feeling their best. Tensions can get a little high. And what I found myself doing was getting into this trap where I am constantly putting myself number two. But what I would expect was that, hey, I've done a lot here. Can you give me at least a little bit of credit? There's an interesting paradox there. I am in the habit of putting myself second, putting others before me. But my expectations were that someone else would do the same for me. And that that leads to a lot of frustration. When I was being vulnerable and communicating with my wife in the hospital and saying, hey, I really got scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. For a moment there, you weren't making sense. Even though it felt like a moment of weakness, I really was putting myself first and explaining how I felt. And so that led me thinking about how strong vulnerability can be in really, really difficult times. Incorrectly, it can seem that vulnerability is a sign of weakness, is a sign of exposure, is a sign of focusing on things that are too negative. But in actuality, that is part of us trying to manage our perceptions. Just as me and the ski lodge, I was trying to manage the perceptions of how Brenda was perceiving me, you know, not trying to aggregate things, not trying to make things worse, how my friends were perceiving me handling the situation calm, cool, and collected, as the kids were seeing me, how I was handling it, not wanting to upset them, and thinking of other people first so much that it actually was having a negative effect on me. Not in that moment. In that moment, I really felt like I was making the right decisions. But 24 hours after, 36 hours after, when, again, you're, ha- you're dealing with someone who's not feeling their best, right? Imagine the worst hangover you've had and give yourself uh, r- just muscle cramps and all sorts of craziness on there. You're not really up for bargaining and negotiating. And it was really hard for me to try to ask credit because, again, I don't think of myself first. Why would someone else do that? The whole scenario in retrospective reminded me of an article that I got shared with me last year from the New York Times by a writer called Tim Kreidecker. I recently heard uh, about him again on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and this is from a 2013 article called I Know What You Think of Me, and I'll keep this in the show notes. And here's a, a clip from a paraphrase from that article, not paraphrase, here's a a portion from the uh, the article here. It says, another friend once shared with me one of the aphorisms of the 12-step recovery program. What other people think of you is none of your business. Like a lot of wisdom, 
This sounds at first suspiciously similar to idiotic nonsense. Obviously, what other people think of you is your business. It's your main job in life to try to control it, to do tireless PR and spin control for yourself. Every woman who has ever went out with you must pine you forever. Those who rejected you must regret it. You must be loved, respected, above all, taken seriously. They who mocked you will rule the day. The problem is that this is insane. The psychology of dictators who regard all dissent as treason and periodically order purges to ensure unquestioning loyalty, it's no way to run a country. The operative fallacy here is that we believe unconditionally love means not seeing anything negative about someone when it really means pretty much the opposite, loving someone despite their infuriating flaws and essential absurdity. Do I want to be loved in spite of? Donald Barthamine writes in his story, Rebecca, about a woman with green skin. Do you? Does anyone? But aren't we all, to some degree? We don't give other people credit for the same interior complex complexity we take for granted in ourselves, the same capacity for holding contradictory feelings in balance, for complexity alloyed affections, for bottomless generosity of heart and petty capricious malice. We can't believe that anyone could be unkind to us and still be genuinely fond of us, although we do it all the time. That's Tim Crydecker. So, that really inspired me to talk today more about vulnerability. And part of the reason that I'm speaking in this format and the show has taken this format of just kind of train of thought, what's really going on, really comes from Mel Robbins. I actually finished her book today, The Five Second Rule, which is an excellent, excellent book. And I hope to one day, you know, who knows, keep my fingers crossed. Mel, if you're out there, love to have you on the show. But I heard about her five-second rule, and I went to, to talk to her um, afterwards. You know, there's a line of 100 people after it was a big conference in Boston. And a lot of people go to the, the keynote speaker. She was the closing keynote speaker, gave an awesome, you know, home run pitch, closed out a conference on emotional intelligence, and talked about her five-second rule, and was very transparent about how she came with the rule and applied it to her own you know, from her own faults, from her own failures. And, you know, I'm waiting in line. The clock's ticking. I got to go to the airport in an hour. I was like, look, I just want to get a picture with her because I really, I've seen Mel on YouTube several times before. You know, I want just to be able to say, hey, I got to see Mel Robbins and she's fantastic in person. Wasn't really thinking much of it. And what happens with Mel Robbins is that when people are in line, because of how open and how personable she is, is that when people go to take their picture, they tell her their life story. So you can see other people in the back of the line with me in Boston, they're all trying to get to the airport. You know, it's Friday night. It's definitely, there's definitely some traffic. So a lot of people want to take pictures. I'm, I'm seeing a couple people bail. So finally, I get up to, to see her. And I was like, hey, you know, Mel, I don't really want to take too much of your time up. I just wanted to say thank you and that you're awesome. And she goes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if I want to take up your time? And I was like, what, what do you mean? And she was like, tell me, what did you like about what I said? I said, I thought it was 
incredible. I thought you were amazing and open and, you know, very transparent. And I read your previous book and, you know, I'm really trying to, to apply those things. And I'd like to do this. I'd like to do what you do someday. And she's like, well, why can't you? I was like, I don't know. I can't, I can't be that open. I can't be that vulnerable. And she challenges and says, you know, one of the reasons why she's a, a top speaker is because she speaks about true things. She speaks authentically. And she looks at me and I was telling her a little bit more about how I'm a coach and how I want to do things. And she goes, look, no one, you, you got to be yourself. No one wants a bullshit coach. And she said it obviously in, with a wink and a nudge way, meaning that the more open and vulnerable and transparent I am about my struggles, even though it seems like that would give me, that would discredit me as if, well, if you can't solve these problems, then how the hell are you going to help anyone else? It's actually the opposite, which is the more open, the more transparent, the more vulnerable you are, the more credit you get because people relate to you. They understand that you can help them because you're working on some of the same things. And the whole beauty of coaching is that you don't need to have all the answers. It's rarely even about the answer. Even if you have that golden question in coaching, even if you land that golden question, which just makes someone stop and rethink all of their lives, which, by the way, never happens. Even if you have that golden question that truly sinks in, it's really what the client brings to your coaching session that makes it happen. And the same thing here, which is the success of my progress is how open and vulnerable and transparent I am about my problems, my issues. Even if it's about a ski trip and dealing with a, a cranky recovering patient who just so happens to be my spouse. But that's part of the trap is that even in times of sheer panic, where your mind is going to the most extreme negative possibilities, things that are not in reality, things that could happen, things that might happen, things you're worrying about, you know, that's a, a good time to be vulnerable, even though it doesn't feel initially like that's the answer. But being vulnerable is allowing you to take a step back, to observe these normal human emotions that come up and then allow you to actually do something about it. But if you're spending all your energy fighting against what is natural, trying to suppress, trying to ignore, trying to stuff down these emotions so that you can be perceived as strong, you got nothing left for yourself. You have to imagine that there is a perception, a version of you that is pushing on a wall, a wall that does not move. And in that wall, there is a door. And on the other side of the door is your subconscious, your subconscious that's trying to look inward. And the subconscious is saying, man, you suck. You're messing this up. You're outward saying, I got to get out of here. I can't deal with all this stuff internally. And because you have these two opposing forces, 
that are pushing against the same door in opposite directions. It feels solid, like a wall, like it isn't going anywhere. In our last episode, when I started thinking and did a yearly reflection, you know, for the since I talked to Mel, and that was probably two months ago, I felt that the problems I were having were so insurmountable. There was no way I was going to be able to fix it. But slowly and surely, even though it's not perfect, even though I haven't discovered all the answers yet, vulnerability has allowed me to stop pushing against that door, which has a counterbalance with my subconscious, and allow me to take a step back. And I've opened that door so that rather than pushing to try to get out, I've opened the door to allow my subconscious in, allow these emotions, allow these feelings to be addressed. I've allowed myself to be vulnerable. And that's the starting point. Vulnerability is the start of your mountain because only then you can realize what's going on and only then you have enough energy to do something about it. And if I can do something about it and if I can start making these discoveries, if I can be vulnerable, so can you. Thanks for tuning in. For more information on Hawthorne Union, you can go to www.hawthorneunion.com or reach us at info at hawthorneunion.com. 